Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And John, I want to thank you for sharing with me a clip on Tuesday evening, before it went totally viral, of some of the most oblivious Wheel of Fortune contestants in history (laughs) failing to solve a puzzle in which almost every letter was filled in. Uh, Surely most of our listeners have seen the clip by now. It's stunningly pathetic, particularly the woman in the middle guessing (laughs) another feather in your hat, then another feather in your lap, and finally, another feather in your map. Uh, John, something tells me professional sports better and one-time gamble on guest Jeopardy James Holzhauer would have known the answer to this one. Um, I realize game shows are not part of the gaming industry, so Wheel of Fortune is typically located outside our purview. But this was just too hilarious not to riff on. So, uh, John, riff away. Oh, yes. Uh, well, Jeopardy James specializes in in-game betting, right? Mm-hmm. Just imagine if they had this for game shows. So for those who haven't seen the clip, the puzzle got to a point where all the letters in another feather already had been revealed because contestants love to buy vowels for some reason. <laughs> also, the N from N was revealed, as well as the Y, O, and R in your plus the A in cap. <laughs> so props to the guy who asked for a D, presumably going for another feather in your dap. I kind of like that one. Um, so you bet like a hundred bucks to win a dollar before the woman guesses hat. And then you double up on the guy who wants a G for some reason. Uh, then not a guy who goes bankrupt. Then you do it again on the lady who guesses lap. Then the D guess guy. Then a player who lands on a lose a turn. Then on the lady who correctly guesses P. Wait, maybe you didn't bet on her before her spin because you've lost a little faith in her after those two pathetic guesses. So you wait until the P appears, and now you lay down 100 bucks for like 50 cents because she has <laughs> app. So there's no way she could be wrong again. And then the DAP guessing guy goes bankrupt. And at this point, so do you, the truck play gambler, <laughs> only to see the game won on the very next spin. Ain't that always the way with gambling? But uh, <laughs> this takes me all the way back to Super Bowl 13 in the late 1970s when Cowboys linebacker Thomas Hollywood Henderson famously said that Steelers quarterback Terry Bradshaw was so dumb that he couldn't spell cat if you spotted him the C and the A. Well, I didn't get the occupation of these two struggling contestants, but if either of them have four Super Bowl rings, they'll laugh this off just like Terry does. <laughs> there you go. It's funny. I've heard that saying, and I didn't realize where it had yeah. come from. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, watching this clip, and I've wa- now watched it several times because I had to show it to my daughter and then show oh, it to course, my son yeah. and then show it to my wife. Yeah. I can almost sympathize with another feather in your hat. Uh, although, you know, a good player notices that the H and the T have been used already. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. but still, but still, that's like an almost understandable brain fart. Okay. To, you All know, right. you can sort okay. of think that sounds right in your head. I, I get mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Lap is idiocy. And, and map is next level idiocy. <laughs> and so um, before people go blaming the wearing of masks in school for stunting a generation of educational <laughs> development, look at this clip and remember that education has been failing since long before COVID. Um, mm. ha- have I mentioned uh, that I once tried to get on Wheel of Fortune, John? No, I don't think so. So yeah. a-, a guy that I worked with about 10 years ago was on the show and he won big, like 65 grand or so, if I recall. 
and I've always been a dominant at home Wheel of Fortune player. Um, yeah. By the way, it's it's not bragging for me to say I'm good <laughs> yeah, at it because exactly. honestly, it's not the most intellectually challenging <laughs> right. game show. Um, so yeah. I made a video. I sent it in online. I really wanted a chance to go on the show and uh, smile and clap like an idiot and try to win some money, but they uh, they never reach back out to me. And then uh, you know these three imbeciles get to go on the show. Uh, actually, two, two imbeciles because uh, the the guy who ultimately solved the puzzle might have known it all along and he just kept having bad luck with the wheel yes uh, but uh, but thank goodness he did have that bad luck because otherwise maybe he solved the puzzle before the lap and map guesses and were robbed of this comedy gold yes i had a former colleague who was on wheel of fortune also he won five figures too hmm. another colleague was on jeopardy finished second a strong second and another one who was on family feud with their first family so <laughs> if that clip can ever be regained it's going to confuse some people because who are those strangers that you're with so yeah <laughs> right. no names no gender no any explanation that's as deep as i'm getting into that but it's interesting to know people who've been in all three of those shows yeah there you go all right uh well thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 183 of gamble on if you missed any of our previous 182 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. And please give us a five-star rating. That would be a real feather in our app. Ah, nicely played there, Eric. Nicely played. Uh, coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by a gambling industry reporter who we added to our staff last year, Bennett Conlon. Bennett lives in that D.C., Maryland, Virginia, DMV area where there's been plenty of gambling expansion lately. So we'll get his insights on everything happening in that area, as well as his tips for filling out a March Madness bracket. But first, it's been a pleasantly busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We'll kick off the news segment this week with news that broke last week, just hours after our podcast posted. Twin Spires is planning to exit the online sports betting and online casino space in the next six months. Parent company Churchill Downs CEO Bill Carstengen said on a quarterly earnings call. Carstengen said their retail sports books are profitable, but indicated the online operations are not, which is not too surprising if you are watching monthly revenue reports out of Twin Spires states and seeing how low they routinely ranked. The Twin Spires Sportsbook is live in seven states, and the iCasino is in three, and the numbers have been weak across the board. Twin Spires Sportsbook was, in fact, losing money in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. Uh, Churchill Downs just transitioned to the Twin Spires brand last April. Previously, they went by Bet America, and it turns out that brand will barely survive one year. We've certainly seen that Mobile sports betting is a highly competitive space, and if you don't spend big on marketing or have an instantly recognizable brand name, you tend to be near the bottom of the pack. And now we see one of the first casualties, Twin Spires. John, do you see this as the start of a trend that now that we're getting close to maturity in a lot of markets, the companies who are struggling are going to start giving up? And any idea what specifically went wrong for Twin Spires? Well, look at Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona. You mentioned the states where they're losing money. They're among the most competitive states in the country for sports betting revenue. You know, I have no idea why these companies bring a proverbial betting knife to a betting gunfight. I mean, at least offer something unique. Otherwise, why would anyone bother to sign up with you? It doesn't take a lot of market research expertise to know that older casual bettors use very few apps. 
I'm aware of this. And younger <laughs> ones have so many crammed into their phones, they're reluctant to add any, many more. So they stick to the big brands because they already have too many damn apps. So we're going to lose some misguided operators like this in the next 12 months for sure. But you know, other companies who are looking to get in on the action, they're going to be fortunate to have been shown the error of their ways before it's too late. And they can be grateful to the the blunderers like the Twin Spires. Yeah. Um, Twin Spires strikes me as really a model in how not to stand out in a competitive market. Mm -hmm. um, they, they rebranded to this name that means nothing to people. Um, yeah. I actually think if they'd gone by Churchill Downs Sportsbook, that would have had a little bit better branding. At least people know that name, Churchill Downs, not saying that that would have worked either. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, no name brand value in Twin Spires. And as you said, no distinguishing betting options. You know, uh, points bet shows up in a state. And at least they offer something that no other sports book offers. <laughs> Twin Spires is just another sports book using Camby odds like a bunch of other books. It makes sense that they couldn't make money. Uh, but, you know, credit to CDI, I guess, for pulling the plug before losing any more money. You know, they'd seen enough. They got out. They still have their horse racing betting platform, which they say is doing well. Uh, mm -hmm. But, yeah, certainly this won't be the last operator to exit the space. I doubt that we'll see an avalanche of several exiting over the next few months or anything. It'll be more gradual, but you know, whether the smaller ones get absorbed by the bigger ones or they simply throw in the towel like Twin Spires, I do think more will go away over the next couple of years. Matt Rybotowski just wrote about the possibility of Flutter ditching the Foxbet brand, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's a recognizable brand name, Fox, but mm -hmm. it hasn't caught on as a sports book. I don't know exactly who's going to be left standing, but it, it does seem we've reached the point where the number of online sports books will be contracting rather than expanding going forward. Yeah. I mean, DraftKings, FanDuel, MGM, and Caesars are all in. They are going to spend as much money as it takes to wipe out everyone else. And I can't picture anyone else. Um, I guess, uh, Barstool is interesting and, and Penn National, they have a chance, I think, because they're combined, they're pretty sizable. I, I don't know that there's a sixth one. So everybody else, uh, you know, take take note of this because uh, I, don't, I don't know how you compete with the big boys. I guess it depends, you know, how big you want to be and whether just being profitable on a smaller scale is good enough for like, you know, look at a Superbook and uh, Circa and some of these ones that haven't mm -hmm. cracked the big name, you know, the, the top of the charts there, but are out there in a few states. If, if your expectations are, we just want to be profitable, not make a huge amount of money, you know, maybe they'll, they'll hang around and it won't just be the big four or five. But yeah, if the goal is to be one of the big four or five, <laughs> there's only room for, for those four or five and the others uh, are, are never going to crack that list, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, outside of the absolute sharps, I don't think anybody has six or seven or eight apps on their phone. Right. And so you have to get in there instead of a DraftKings or a FanDuel. Or C I mean, I, I, I don't see it at all. So I, I think they're pretty much all going down in flames at some point. Okay. Um, our second and third news stories this week both concern the attempted legalization of sports betting in southeastern states. And up first is Kentucky. Bills have been introduced in both the House and the Senate in Kentucky in the past week. In the Senate, SB 213 covers mobile and retail betting as well as online poker. And in-person registration would be required for mobile betting accounts through 2023. 
The House bill came from Representative Adam Koenig, who has led the charge on this issue in the past. Uh, HB 606 could be rolled into an omnibus bill combined with legislation to fund problem gaming, as well as some horse racing issues. And it also covers both retail and mobile betting. The two bills have a lot in common, uh, including their sponsors not exuding confidence that they'll pass. Uh, So what do you think, John? Is there real hope for Kentucky sports betting legislation in 2022? And any details of these bills standing out to you? Yeah, well, a number of members from both major parties are pushing the same radical notion to let adults make adult decisions. Mm. Interesting. So there's that. Um, but it's a conservative state, obviously. And in some parts of the state, I suspect support for expanding legal gambling either is or is feared to be a political loser. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wonder if the horse racing industry there is a real factor, as it's, it's the biggest driver of a particular state's economy than any other state in the country. So residents there, they love their horse racing and their horse farms. And even if the case that sports betting would hinder that industry, isn't that compelling it wouldn't surprise me if for some it's a case of but why take a chance you know so no this isn't going anywhere in kentucky in 2022 then again while i was right in 2018 2019 2020 and 21 about new york state not adding mobile sports betting well there it came one week (laughs) into this year 2022 so just be patient kentuckians Yeah, I mean, you talked about the political element. It is an election year. Uh, Reportedly, those senators and representatives who've been anti-gambling in the past aren't going to change now and risk pissing off their anti-gambling constituents. Um, Senate Majority Leader Damon Thayer told Sports Handle back in December that he will he believes Kentucky will be, quote, one of the last states to legalize sports betting. Um, And uh, about the best that uh, Adam Koenig could say was that he thinks it ought to be close in terms of whether his bill gets a floor vote. That's about about the most positive he could be. It'll be close in terms of whether we get a vote. Um, Now, Kentucky has already made a lot of money off online gambling. Uh, You'll recall that uh, Flutter Mm -hmm. forked over a $300 million settlement for poker stars having operated in a gray area in the state Mm -hmm. more than a decade ago. Um, Reading all the various tea leaves, it it would sure seem that, uh, sure, they'll they'll legalize sports betting eventually. But like you, I think it would be a shocker if, if one of these bills actually got anywhere this year. Um, and as far as the just one of the specific elements of the bills, uh, this is a topic that uh, we'll discuss also with Bennett Conlon shortly. But uh, these bills are not restricting betting on college sports, uh, which is kind of a big deal in Kentucky where there aren't any major pro teams. You better be able to bet on the in-state college sports there. Yeah, exactly. If you can't bet on Kentucky, uh, University of Kentucky, who are you betting on? So uh, that's interesting, too. But then again, that plays into that, you know, a conservative, uh, reluctant viewpoint is, mm-hmm. wait, you bet on Kentucky basketball. That's a sacred thing in Kentucky. So that that's even though there's it would be silly to legalize betting in Kentucky without letting you bet on University of Kentucky. But I think it also adds to the political dynamic where that's why I think it's not going to happen because that's, uh, you know, again, why take a chance? What if it, you know, changes something? It's not really logical, but it's understandable, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're right to uh, preach patience for Kentuckians who want to bet mm. it, it'll happen, but uh, it's not, it's not happening just yet. Um, so uh, moving on to our next story, if Kentucky's bills aiming to legalize sports betting look similar to bills introduced in other States, The same cannot be said for Alabama. Uh, Their representative, John Rogers, has taken a unique approach to introducing sports betting legislation in a state where legalization has faced opposition in the past. His HB 405 would not try for statewide legalization. Instead, 
He's trying to legalize sports betting in one Alabama county. Uh, That would be the state's most populous county, Jefferson, which contains the city of Birmingham. If this were to pass, Alabama would not be the first state where betting is legal in some areas, but not others. In Louisiana, you can bet in 55 of 64 parishes. And in South Dakota, you can only bet in the city of Deadwood. Still, trying to push through legislation for exactly one county is something new. John, any sense of whether it might work for Rogers? Uh, And is it worth it, in your view, to go about it in such a piecemeal county-by-county manner? I mean, confining legal gambling to only one county... Oh, wait, New Jersey's done this with Atlantic City and casinos for 44 <laughs> right. years, so so never mind. Um, but I actually like this idea, granting that I'm making some cultural assumptions here, so a stereotype alert. Um, I would speculate that the Birmingham area would be more receptive to legalizing gambling, whereas rural counties in Alabama, which are plentiful, would be more resistant. So this way, you don't need to get lawmakers in rural areas to approve gambling there. Just allow it for the big city folks. And I'll just add that a, a New Jersey referendum on casinos in 1974 lost in a landslide because voters worried that a casino and all the stereotypical fears about a crime wave and all that might wind up in their backyard. So two years later, the ballot question was, we promise only in Atlantic City. And that won easily. That's why I think Alabama might be onto something here. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, certainly something is better than nothing uh, if you're looking to have sports betting. Uh, and so if Rogers thinks there's a chance this passes in Jefferson County, go ahead with it. And then next year, maybe you come back and try for some other counties. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I, I, don't, I don't hate the idea, even though it could lead to a long, strange, many years long process of, of legalizing in Alabama county by county. Um, I'll add that like Kentucky, they'd better be able to bet on in-state college sports or else there's not much <laughs> yeah. point legalizing. Um, and it just, you know, it's interesting to look now at the map of the Southeast uh, Kentucky is almost totally surrounded by states with legal mobile sports betting, um, or at least it will be once Ohio goes live. Uh, So if you live anywhere within driving distance of a border, it's easy to get bets down. And Kentucky is just losing tax money to all these other states. But Alabama is not in that same position. Um, Mississippi to the west has retail only. Florida to the south, retail only at the moment. Uh, Georgia to the east, nothing yet. Tennessee to the north. That's the one border you can cross and bet on your phone. Uh, But uh, Jefferson County is just about smack dab in the middle of Alabama, sort of creates a new border (laughs) throughout the state where (laughs) you're not that far from a place you can bet. Um, I guess Alabama and Georgia might go somewhat hand in hand and that, you know, if if one of them legalizes, then the other follows soon, maybe. Um, But it could be a case where neither one is really feeling the urgency yet without the other having legalized. This might prove me wrong. You know, in mid 2018, after New Jersey won their Supreme Court case and any state could have sports betting. And of course, about 30 of them now do have it. And I went on this Alabama sports talk radio station and they were so fired up, you know, to be able to bet on Auburn and Alabama games. And first of all, I'm thinking like, don't you have corner bookies? I mean, do you guys, you have no, or don't you have the internet even really? I mean, you don't think you can bet already, but that's not legal. So, okay. They're, but I got the impression they didn't even know that you could bet at all, even, even improperly. And they were so fired up. And I, my theory then was that any state that doesn't even have casinos like Alabama is not going to have sports betting. So this might prove me wrong. Well, yeah, but uh, then again, uh, that was four years or so ago. So it's, it's yeah. there's a statute of limitations on any negative <laughs> prediction, I think. Okay. If, they, if right. they legalize in, you know, 2026 or something, you weren't wrong to say that Alabama isn't going to have uh, sports betting just yet. Right. Thanks for that absolution. Okay. 
It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. With our ever-expanding staff of U.S. Bets writers comes an ever-expanding stable of potential podcast guests, and we are pleased to welcome now a Gamble On rookie. He's our man on the scene in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia triangle. He hosts his own podcast covering college sports, and he's covered legislative and regulatory gambling happenings in a wide assortment of states since joining our editorial team last year. He is Bennett Conlon. Bennett, welcome to Gamble On. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, rookie rookie season for me here, but uh, exciting to be here. So as I mentioned, you live in the DMV. Uh, Virginia got up and running with mobile sports betting in 2021, and things seem to be going relatively smoothly. But D.C. is a mess with the Gambit mobile monopoly, and Maryland is taking its sweet time launching. Just how disastrous is the Gambit situation from what you're seeing and hearing there? And is there any chance of that monopoly ending in D.C.? And then also, what's the latest on the Maryland timeline? Sure, yeah. So for the the Gambit D.C. mess, I guess it kind of depends on how you define disaster. So uh, have either of you used, I guess, Gambit D.C.? Have you had a chance to actually try out the app? I have not. No, I've been no. spoiled with the DraftKings and the FanDuel's of the world <laughs> yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I came from Virginia to sort of the DC area, uh, tried it out. The odds are a little bit worse. So you're kind of like typically getting like minus 110, right? If you're taking a spread or something like that at most books, you're looking at maybe minus 115, minus 120, more consistently at Gambit DC. The interface isn't as good. So you're used to seeing probably the spread, the total and the money line. You have to click into like a different tab just to like take a money line wager. Um, so it's like a, it's a series of inconveniences that just kind of adds up if you're using the app. Um, that's probably not the biggest disaster, right? It's a little inconvenient. The odds aren't as good. The way they've kind of given out the contract has been uh, more of a disaster where it's the sole source contract, no competitive bids in there. So Intralot's the mobile app provider. They didn't get approval from Apple during the Super Bowl for an update. So the app was down for the entirety of the Super Bowl, just kind of stuff like that. That's kind of Bush League, right? You wouldn't expect that from a DraftKings or a FanDuel on the biggest sports betting day of the year. So there's stuff like that. And they also had some controversy in the past where they were supposed to kind of subcontract local businesses uh, to help with the launch and all that stuff. And they were using essentially fake businesses that Intralot was involved with to like funnel more cash to themselves. So um, definitely a controversial contract there and there's the opportunity at some point that they could potentially uh, go away from interlot and add more competition i talked to a dc council member recently um, and unprompted i kind of asked just for their reaction to the the super bowl mishap and unprompted he had given a, a comment about like it's probably too early to pull the plug on the contract which is not something i had mentioned so i think <laughs> interesting that the council is thinking about it right. <laughs> and brings it up um, so that's that's obviously interesting i think Maryland's mobile push could potentially make DC look at things a little harder because they've said that that Gambit DC, the primary function of that is to to really just make revenue for the district. Um, and you look at like Caesars, which only operates in a two block radius around Capital One Arena, that pulls in more money for the district than Gambit DC because users don't like that experience as much. So when you look at that, you look at the fact that Maryland's going to have mobile you're looking at maybe like September right now is kind of the rough estimate I've gotten from some some people in the industry. Virginia already has it. At a certain point, you would think they would want either Gambit DC to get its act together or uh, to maybe go somewhere else and, and try something else, make it a little more competitive in the district. 
Hmm. Okay, so that's sort of the thought is that once Marilyn launches, maybe that's sort of the the key domino in terms of inspiring DC to shake it up and either either change the provider or perhaps is there, is there talk even of like a fully competitive market with right. several operators? I think that would certainly help just to have a little more competition uh, with Maryland and maybe even less revenue coming in. Because if your primary goal is to be a revenue driver and you're getting beat out by books that operate only in two blocks of, of <laughs> DC, it's kind of a tough scene for them. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. They also interlot. It was a five-year contract that was signed in 2019. So you're sort of progressing through that. Uh, there was an audit that was done recently to kind of give some suggestions. So I think if some of those are, are maybe implemented by Gambit DC and Interlot, you could you could have them stay with that contract. But there's also the ability to kind of pivot out of it if it you know realize that it's not working. Whether that's playing out the entirety of the contract or maybe trying to figure out something to to get out of it early. Uh, yeah. Now, Bennett, I think Virginia is another one of those states that allows betting on any college sports, I think, but not uh, games played by universities in the state uh, that are that are in the state. Um, New, New Jersey actually had a couple of unique, plausible reasons why they enacted it. But um, other states, I don't know why they are doing it. Uh, was there have you heard of any discussion? You know, what was the concern involved that that they couldn't do that? Because they're not against, I think, college betting. Right. So if you can bet on Auburn against Florida, but you can't bet on Virginia Tech against Virginia. I'm not sure I get it. So were there any reasons offered why they do this? The logic that some of the legislators have kind of said is that they want to keep an arm's length from it, which sounds more of like something uh, that, that maybe they're having going on in their head where they feel like they're at an arm's length because they're not allowing betting on UVA and Virginia Tech more so than them actually being at an arm's length. So it's interesting, right, because there's the worry about throwing games and you know, if a player gets bribed by someone in Virginia or whatever, and they, they decide to throw the game, someone bets on it, but you can just drive up to a Maryland casino. You can go to West Virginia. Like if you really wanted to have somebody throw a game, you would think the, you know, hour and a half drive up to DC is probably worth your time. If you're going through all that, <laughs> that, that effort to bribe somebody. So um, the logic there is a little bit confusing and, and one that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's kind of hard to get the, the legislators to really give a, a firm reason because they looked at it again with a couple bills here in the legislative session in Virginia. Uh, both of them were shot down. And some of the people that shot it down were just saying, you know, we decided to do this two years ago and it feels early. Like, I don't want to change anything. It doesn't seem like a worthwhile thing for us to change. So there's a lot of just, I guess, not wanting to take action because it feels uh, soon in some of the legislators' minds. Yeah, I mean, in 2011, way back in 2011, uh, New Jersey was looking at uh, passing a state law that dumbed its nose at PASPA, the, the law that basically uh, restricted the sports betting to Nevada. And the reason that the restriction was put on is that they needed three-fifths majority in both uh, houses in Trenton. And there was some pushback from some Rutgers alumni lawmakers who felt like, well, I don't want to get run afoul of Rutgers and, and their and their uh, people. So I'm not sure. Otherwise, I'd be OK. And so the feeling was, well, what the heck, you know, we're, we're trying to sucker the NFL and the NCA and the other leagues into suing us in federal court and we can beat them. And it took seven years, but they did. And so that makes a lot of sense why they did it. It's like, you know, it's not a big deal. Rutgers is the only division one football team. Nobody cares about Rutgers anyway, to be honest. So it's not a big loss. And then the other reason was PASPA was sponsored by Senator Bill Bradley, who uh, played college basketball at Princeton and is one of the greatest 
college basketball players in NCAA history. And there's a little bit of deference to him and respect for him. So that makes some sense. Every other state, I don't, I don't know what the heck they're thinking. Although not to give too much credit to New Jersey, because last fall they had a referendum saying, all right, we're going to fix that silly loophole. And now we're going to legalize games on uh, betting on those games too. And the voters said, Oh no, I don't, we're not going to do that for reasons that, uh, mystify everybody other than there was no marketing campaign either way not a nickel was spent uh either way and i think i think a lot of voters that aren't gamblers didn't even know you can bet on almost every college game so they thought oh we didn't have betting on college that are amateurs i think and now we want to do that that seems risky even though it's already done illegally obviously and it's also done um illegally on almost every game so it's a strange result but uh you know that doesn't put New Jersey ahead of uh, anybody else like Virginia and New York, Connecticut, so many other states. It's a, it's a strange phenomenon, but it's, it's going to keep going, I think. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to track. Another lawmaker had mentioned that they didn't want like student athletes being like tweeted at or online of people upset that they didn't cover. And you like I'm a JMU fan. You look at the JMU mentions kind of a low level men's basketball program. You got people from out of state who every time they they don't cover or quick to to hop in the official account mentions and tag players about <laughs> cover. So uh, I don't know if that's necessarily saving them from that. <laughs> yeah. I think in-state proximity really doesn't matter when you're on the internet uh, hurling insults <laughs> at people. It doesn't seem. So uh, in your uh, time with the company so far, you've read and reported on plenty of newly introduced bills and you've spoken to a variety of politicians in different states Generally, do the legislators seem to understand how sports betting works and what it is they're considering legalizing? Or are you finding that a lot of them are just seeing dollar signs and pursuing the tax money without really understanding the practical elements? I think a little more of the latter, but it kind of depends on state and each legislator. But I think it's been really fascinating to go to some of these or listen into some of these meetings where you do have the, the decision maker on like whether a state can get sports betting or whether a state can you know, gamble on or within a state you can gamble on colleges, things like that. They really don't know a lot. And they're the ones that are kind of uh, holding the power in this situation. It's kind of fascinating when um, they haven't done their homework and they're, they're asking some questions like Arkansas, for example, uh, there was a hearing there about like a 51% revenue sharing rule. Um, and they were discussing whether it, it broke state or federal law. And that was the extent of the hearing, not whether or not the rule uh, made sense or was good policy. And you had some lawmakers that were asking questions just related to gambling and whether people should like be able to gamble and things like that. So completely different than what the topic of the actual hearing was about. I thought that was kind of fascinating. You had people in the background that were kind of laughing, uh, just confused as to how the hearing went a certain way. So it is really interesting when you have some of these lawmakers that maybe haven't done their homework and in some cases, understandably haven't, where they've got more important things on their plate. And, right. you know, I spoke with one Virginia lawmaker who actually proposed the bill to allow betting on Virginia colleges. And he told me, you know, I'm not losing sleep at night over this. I think it makes sense to have it legalized and, and all regulated and things like that, but it's not something that's top of mind. So when you have decision makers that don't have a top of mind, it's kind of fascinating how it steers each state in different directions, kind of depending on, you know, what the legislators have going on in that particular session. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's a good point that it's not the top priority. And for, for most of these folks, maybe the people introducing the bills, you would think would, would at least right, know right. what they're talking about a little more. But, you know, certainly, you know, you're coming to this as the perspective from the perspective of a reporter who 
uh, you know, started in this, whatever it was, six months or so ago, that uh, there's a learning curve. You, you know, you uh, you covered sports and you had general knowledge of how gambling worked, but there's a learning curve at first. Uh, does it does it seem like as these bills sort of make their way along, sometimes these people, there is a learning curve or it's just kind of like one of those things that some people just aren't interested in, in really figuring out. I think it's definitely getting there with some of them. Like some of the hearings, a lot of it is focused on kind of the educational aspect so people can understand more about it. And there are some States like I listened uh, and I think it was last week, Missouri had some like good strides. You could tell people genuinely cared about to learn more about the industry and they were, and they spent about three hours kind of, learning more. And then they, they didn't take a vote at the end. So it was really just kind of an informational hearing. So I think that's a positive. You live in one of those States and you want, you know, fair regulations that, that make sense for recreational betters. It's nice when you do have legislators who at least take an interest in, all right, why is this something that people are proposing the, the bill for? So I do think some States have done a nice job of, of educating themselves. It just, it's fascinating, at least from my perspective, right. As a new reporter in the industry to see the varying levels of, of education that some of the lawmakers have and how long it takes them maybe to, to get up to speed from going from a company Slack channel from, you know, better collective to, to one of those hearings. It's, it's fascinating. The varying levels of education. All right. And Ben, and we got the March Madness coming up, obviously. So uh, everybody's looking for any small edge they can get. You know, I've been filling out these brackets for more than 35 years. And, uh, uh, you know, initially I was just on a piece of paper and you, you, you scribble the name and now you just go on a website and you click a, a team. But I always think of a little, you know, uh, basketball god on my shoulder. And, you know, you've got that three seed and you keep advancing and get them in the final four. And there's a little giggling that you can't quite hear because they're going to lose in the first round. You don't know it. And that's going to pretty much crush your bracket. So uh, I think that gives people a little little pause when they're making the picks because they realize that if they take a chance on a certain team and they lose early, it's going to be big trouble. So uh, uh, any advice for to help people kind of get over that little uh, bit of hesitation and, and fear? And, and uh, you know, we none of us knows exactly who's going to win the tournament, who's the final four, but just sort of a way to look at approaching, you know, making your bracket picks. Yeah, I think especially like office pool wise, I feel like a good, uh, I guess, tip is to have a national champion that makes sense because everything from there, I feel like you can get away with in terms of like in office conversation. If you've got like last year, if you had Gonzaga or Baylor or even this year, if you had similar teams, you get a one seed, maybe at least one seed in the final four. You got to have one of them in there, but but probably not all chalk. Uh, But if you have a national champion that makes sense, whether it's a one seed or a two seed, chances are that's probably going to happen. In terms of a one or a two seed going all the way, then you've also got the fact that no one in your office, if you are sort of intimidated by filling out a bracket, no one's going to mock you for for picking Gonzaga to win realistically. So I think that helps you there. And then as far as the upsets and things like that, and, and even just betting the NCAA tournament, I feel like there's a lot of value in um, kind of blocking out those one game, like surprising upsets and things like that. It feels like there's been a lot of that in college basketball this year where a team gets upset and then going into the next game, they're like, oh, well, Baylor just lost to Kansas by 20. You know, they must be done. They're, they're in a little bit of a slump. And then they go back and cover their next three games. So that's one that's always nice is like don't overreact to each individual data point in the, the sample and kind of go with what you've got for the year-round sample size. It'll do you some good. But as far as the bracket pool, I think if you've got a one seed, maybe a two seed winning your national title, you can at least get by from there and then if you want to go based on colors, you want to go based on better mascots. I think once you get some uh, some basic stuff in there, you should be good. 
Yeah, I've done a game theory thing where I literally tell people you can enter your office bracket pool without knowing who any of the teams are and just go by the numbers. Like you say, mm-hmm. you don't want all four number one seeds, but you want probably at least one. Um, you don't want anybody below eight for sure in the final four, even if somebody gets there, no one else is going to have it. You don't want to take that chance. Um, And also, you know, if you live in SEC country, don't pick an SEC team. You know, that's going to be overseeded in the, in the, especially if you've got a hundred people in the pool or 120 people in the pool, you know, pick Gonzaga. Now, if you're in, in Washington state, you don't pick Gonzaga because, you know, the majority of the pool is going to have them. So it's not going to help you that much. And they're not any more likely to win than some of the SEC teams necessarily. So, um, you know, that's just a, a small margin, you know, like in a lottery, they used to say back when people, pick their own numbers, pick numbers higher than 31, because people are always betting their kids' birthdays and their own birthday. And so it only went to 31. So if the numbers went to 40, that meant that if you got, if you had three numbers over 30, 31, uh, if you won, you might get the whole, the whole pool rather than sharing it with 15 people because they all had lower numbers. Again, it gives you from a million to one, it gives you like 982,000 to one. It's not great, but uh, it's a little bit, little something, but uh, every little edge helps, like I said. Yeah, for sure. And if you've got the national champion or a team that makes the final four, having them stay alive keeps you a little bit alive based on like the waiting system of the pool and the scoring. Yeah. That's always nice. It always stinks if you've gotten, you know, through the first weekend and you're, you're pretty much dead. <laughs> so I'm someone who watches absolutely no college basketball until March. And then suddenly I'm a, I'm a fan. Is there, do you, at this point, do you have a, a team or two that you, you feel like, uh, might be the one to zero in on that you're uh, sort of focusing on maybe a, a, a likely one seed and also maybe slightly a, a slightly darker horse kind of team that, uh, that you have your eye on. Sure. Yeah. So I think at some point I feel like Gonzaga has got to actually get over the hump and win it. So maybe it's this year, they had a Rocky performance against St. Mary's recently that had some people worried, but they're, they're one that I'm certainly giving a good look to as a, a chalky pick to win it all. And then I was working and writing a lot for our Tennessee state site earlier on, Uh, when I started. So I covered a lot of like the Tennessee, the volunteers. And then also you look nearby, you've got Chattanooga is a really fun team. If they do get in when their conference tournament, they could be an interesting like 13 over a four. Mm. And then you got Murray state, which is a mid major. That's, that's in that region. That's gaining a lot of, a lot of steam. They're kind of top 25 caliber team, really well-known. They have a big guy, which I feel like sometimes you get the mid majors and they're maybe a little undersized, play some small ball, They've got some size. They've got some shooting, uh, maybe better now than they were when they had John Morant, which is kind of interesting. So uh, I think they've got a chance to win a couple of games potentially in the tournament. And then Tennessee, I do like uh, generally what they've done. They've done maybe a little bit better at home, but there's someone who could be in that two, three, four seed mix and make a run. I'm a little biased because I took some Tennessee futures in December, but yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fingers crossed they can actually make a run. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Uh, Well, uh, let's get some uh, plugs in for you before we uh, let you go. You can uh, follow Bennett on Twitter at Bennett Conlon. Pretty straightforward Twitter handle there. And uh, what's the name of your college sports podcast for those interested in checking it out? Yeah, so I co-host the DRF College Sports Podcast with a buddy of mine. We do some college basketball picks. I think we'll probably have a podcast or two a week uh, in March Madness. So you can certainly find that there. It's on YouTube as well. Just DRF College Sports Podcast. All right. Excellent. Well, thanks uh, so much for joining us on Gamble On, Bennett. Uh, The first of many appearances, I'm sure. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll.
let's update our betting bankroll. And we did it, John. We had a pure winning week. No caveats, <laughs> no asterisks, no barely eking out a $10 profit. Uh, we had two immediate turnaround bets, and they were both easy winners for solid money. One was yours, John. Uh, Alex Norin, top 20 at plus 150 odds. He finished tied for fifth, uh, so we won $150 on that. And the other was mine, Celtics minus seven against the Nets last Thursday. Boston won by 23, so uh, a nice $100 profit there. And we even ran hot with the bets we didn't make, as there were a couple of big boxing upsets last weekend, and I did not see them coming, and I would have lost us money if I bet on those fights. Uh, Man, if only every week could be this smooth for our (laughs) bankroll. We won $250. That means we're now down $2,716. We also have $730 on hold in futures bets. So that leaves us with $6,554 available to bet this week. And I'm up first. And feeling good off the success of my Celtics Nets bet last week, I'm going to make not one, not two, but three Thursday night NBA bets this week. But they'll each be modest in size. Um, First, Miami Heat at Brooklyn Nets. The Heat are playing the second game of a back-to-back. They're without Kyle Lowry, and most importantly, Kevin Durant is expected to return for Brooklyn tonight. They're a whole different team with Durant. I'm getting three and a half points with the Nets. I think this game's close to a pick so mm. let's bet $55 to win 50 on the Nets plus three and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, out West, Lakers-Clippers. You could have gotten rich this season betting against the Lakers. Uh, I think it's worth doing again. They've lost six of their last seven. They're closing in on pack it in territory. The Clippers have won four straight. Uh, Clippers are favored by two and a half in this one. And I think they'll cover that. So let's again, go 55 to win 50 on the Clippers uh, with the spread. And lastly, the Pistons are turning into that frisky team near the bottom of the standings. Uh, they've won three of their last five. They're taking on a Raptors team that's been inconsistent the last couple of weeks. Van Vliet and Ananobi are both questionable tonight. Detroit is plus 300 on the money line. And I think they're a little more live than that. So let's go a small bet of $30 to win $90 that they'll score the upset in Toronto tonight. So that's $140 spread across three NBA bets. That sounds pretty good. Uh, So I've got three consecutive wins for me uh, via the KG veteran foreign player to win for slightly plus money on a top 20 finish. Mm -hmm. So I'll stick with that. Uh, It's the Arnold Palmer Invitational in Florida this week. And uh, let me see what I can find. And I'll stick with the afternoon wave since we taped this around 1030 a.m. on Thursday. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't believe I get two steals this week. So give me 100 on Aussie Mark Leishman, top 20 at plus 120. And 50 more units on Englishman Paul Casey at plus 150. So both are in fine form and have some good results here. So I'm feeling good about these. All right. Um, so I just split my NBA bets into three smaller ones. Uh, going to do similar with boxing. Going to do two smaller boxing bets this week. There are a couple of excellent fights this weekend. One on Friday, one on Saturday. On Friday, Jose Ramirez is about a minus 600 favorite over Jose Pedraza. I say no way, Jose, to that steep price. Uh, <laughs> but I do like Ramirez by decision at minus 140. To me, that's by far the most likely outcome. So let's bet $70 to win 50. And on Saturday, one of the greats, future first ballot Hall of Famer, Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez, has a tough test against the much younger Julio Cesar Martinez. Chocolatito is a small favorite. 
but I think the best odds here are on Chocolatito specifically by decision. He's plus 250 to win a decision. So that's an opportunity to risk a little to win a lot. Let's go $40 to win 100. So we want the two favorites, Ramirez and Gonzalez, both by decision. All right. And, uh, you know, I've read in multiple places now that Kansas is one of those possible final four possible bus March Madness teams. But I'm feeling op- optimistic here now that we're in March. So give me the Jayhawks at plus 275 for 40 units and a possible 150 unit payout. So that's just to, to make the final four Just to make the final four. Yes. All right. Cool. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Bennett Conlon. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Yeah, onto a pet peeve of mine, you know. Now, NCAA football is roundly mocked, and rightly so, for their absurdly named bowl games that reward mediocre teams with taxpayer-funded junkets all over the place. But to that, NCAA men's basketball says, hold my beer, kid. You know, the only conference in the country that doesn't invite not only a majority of its teams, but virtually all, or usually all of its teams, into a postseason tournament is the Ivy League, which invites uh, only four out of eight. So still, a six and seven Cornell team is only two wins away from March Madness. And that's the same conference. The next level are the big leagues where three to nine teams already have a ticket punched. And then a few pretty good teams get a last chance to show that they belong to. That's so bad. Uh, but even there, an 0-18 Georgetown team is invited to the Big East fun at Madison Square Garden. You know, maybe they'll get hot. And yeah, the better bet is that it's a preposterous waste of time. Uh, some conferences at least give a single or double buy to the top four teams, which offers at least a modest point to the regular season, I guess. But the worst, the absolute worst, are the low-level leagues that play each round in gyms of the better-seeded teams. So why does every team have to be in it? Now, sure, my alma mater, FD Knights, were 4-21, but on Monday night, they hosted the first conference tournament game of the year in the U.S. in a silly 8-seed versus 9-seed game. Had the Knights not blown a big lead and lost by a point to Central Connecticut, they just needed to win three road games before modest crowds, obviously, to have been crowned Northeast Conference champs with a sizzling 8-21 record heading to the big dance. So I'm glad they lost. Enough of rewarding not only mediocrity, but also utter ineptitude. And enough of this rant, too. So until next time, everybody, gamble on.